Welcome to the second part of the JSI podcast on Indo-China conflict. I'm Arun Khuller. I'm Pradeep Krishna, an undergrad student in the General School of International Affairs. And with me, I have uh, Mr. Karmani Thadani, uh, an alumni of General School of International Affairs, uh, the founder of the Citizens Foundation for Policy Solutions and the co-writer of the book, India-China Negotiating Spaces in the Narrative. Uh, thank you, Mr. Thadani, for being with us today. My pleasure. It's always nice yeah. to interact with Alma Mater. So continuing with the discussion we were having, uh, moving on to the next question, um, the epitome of India-China conflict was reached in 1962 when both countries declared war on each other. Can you tell us more about the root causes of the war and what were its consequences? Okay. So yes, uh, the war in 1962, uh, though it is cliched to talk about it, that doesn't take away from the fact that it is a very, very important event in Sino-Indian relations and arguably indeed the most important event. So I think anyone listening to this podcast, firstly, I would request them to please listen to part one as well. If you're going to only listen to this part, you will not get the context right. The first question Aryan and Pradeek asked me was about Aksaitin and Arunachal Pradesh. And therefore, it is very, very important to delve into, you know, basically why there is a difference in, you know, the understanding of the borders in these two places and the difference in Indian and Chinese claims over these two places. Only if you understand that, can you understand what went wrong in 1962. So, Fundamentally, at a very basic level, if I were to answer what happened in 1962, it was a missed opportunity. It was a case of missed opportunities because the British left ambiguity for us. You know, the British left this part of the world, uh, leaving a not so clearly defined Sino-Indian border. And neither the Indians nor the Chinese made any clear concerted effort at resolving the border dispute relating to Aksaitin and Arunachal Pradesh. An effort was made related to Marahuti, which is, of, which is worth noting. I would emphasize that that shouldn't be forgotten. But in these two very major theaters, we actually left the borders undefined. And when it comes to Aksaitin, for example, as I mentioned, India recognizes a certain border that the British had proposed, which the Chinese did not react to. But the British themselves used to change that border from time to time. So Aksaitin was an undemarcated area. Now, many people have argued in India and elsewhere that Aksaitin is an icy wasteland. You know, some shepherds may graze there. What is so important about Aksaitin that makes two large countries, you know, militarily engage with each other over it. Right. Of course, the Chinese claims over other parts of Ladakh, like the Dalwan Valley and other things, standoff we had in most recent times, uh, that shows that the Chinese are flexing their muscles further. And I think, you know, when we discuss the way ahead for India and China, that will go beyond these legalities and technicalities or specific historical events to look at a larger trend. There we can discuss these aspects better. But in this particular context, what I would say is that Aksaitin is very important for China because it is the region that connects there to, you know, disturbed areas, if I one may put it, Tibet and Xinjiang. So, you know, the Xinjiang region has been in the news recently 
for the plight of the Uyghurs, the internship, the internment camps that Uyghur Muslims have been put through by the Chinese state and stuff like that. And there are allegations that Han Chinese bureaucrats are even raping Uyghur women and so on and so forth. So, and by the way, Xinjiang has a similar history to Tibet, wherein it has been, you know, an autonomous region within China. But, uh, you know, in Central Asian times or whatever, they've had their own ups and downs, whatever. But fundamentally, Xinjiang does not have, you know, a legal basis to assertively say that it is completely independent of China. So now when the Chinese have had disturbances in these two regions, it is important for them to militarily have access that, you know, if there is a disturbance in Tibet, then, you know, troops from Xinjiang should be able to go there. And if there's a disturbance in Xinjiang, troops from Tibet should be able to go there. So it is of strategic significance for the Chinese. This is an important point I'd like to underline. So, and because there was legal ambiguity as regards its status, uh, you know, it became a theater of conflict. Similarly, now, if we were to move to Arunachal Pradesh, over there, the McMahon line was never recognized by the Chinese ever. Unlike Aksai Chin, there they have had a very clear stand. On Aksai Chin, they didn't react when they had to supposedly, and therefore the British took it as their acquiescence, and you know, it's been vague. In fact, it can be argued that the agreement with the Sikh Confederacy that Tibet under China had entered into sort of is on the lines of what you know the McCartney line in Aksai Chin is like. So there you can, you know have more ambiguity, but on Arunachal Pradesh, the Chinese position has been very unambiguous that they do not recognize that line. Now, over here, after we basically understand that backdrop, let's try and look at what actually happened, which led to a perhaps avoidable and tragic war, and even more tragic for India, because frankly, you know, very sadly, though a lot of our men must have did fight very bravely, uh, we actually ended up losing that war and we lost a lot of our men. So, I mean, any loss of human life, whether it's an Indian soldier or a Chinese soldier is sad. But as Indians, this proved to be a tragedy, a blow for India, an embarrassment for India. Too. So let's, and it is that embarrassment which, you know, uh, still echoes in the consciousness of many Indians and makes them very angry vis-a-vis -vis China. And uh, so, yeah, let's, Let's plunge into history and try and understand what led to, you know, that particular tragic war. Now, to understand this fundamentally, what really happened was that, you know, for example, Subramanian Swami has also said, neither the Indians nor the Chinese have an uncontestable case on the border. Now, India and China both were on fairly friendly relations for a long time. There were trade agreements. There was a trade agreement. In 1954, there were numerous cultural delegations. There were, you know, prime ministerial exchanges, so on and so forth. Then what is it that, you know, really made things so bad? In fact, in 1953, India introduced a resolution in the General Assembly, you know, uh, in which they said, India said that, you know, the Chinese position must be acknowledged on the issue of prisoners of war. So what is it that, you know, made things so bad? Now, the first important event I'd like to mention is that in 1950, basically, the Chinese had published maps in which they showed their boundary with India right up to the Brahmaputra foothills. 
you know so at that point of time india protested in february 1951 and then the chinese said no no this is not our version this is not mao's version this was chiang kai shek's version you know chiang kai shek went on to govern taiwan and the chinese had their own civil war when they were fighting the japanese so on and so forth so but at that time while the chinese said we don't accept this particular map they didn't mention that okay we accept excitation as a part of india or arunachal pradesh as a part of india nor did india say okay this map fine you are rejecting fair enough but what is your stance on excitation or arunachal pradesh this you know was an opportunity when the two sides could have sat and talked about it and they did not and both sides can be equally blamed for it there is no reason to go soft on the tiny side either vis-a-vis this right now nehru pandit nehru he had cultivated a good relationship with the chinese and he was of the opinion that you know it is best we don't rake up controversial things or even bring up you know these controversial border disputes he was advised by many people including you know sardar patel including uh, you know girija shankar ajpai who was a great you know who was a foreign secretary at that point of time uh, you know various people at that point of time you know were telling him that hey let's discuss this with the chinese the british have left it undemarcated right now equally it can be argued that nehru had advised sardar patel to take action because there was intelligence that pakistan will invade jammu and kashmir the princely state and sardar patel didn't act in time so it, that works both ways it's not that one is a hero another is a villain that some people want to make but yes in this context sardar patel wrote a letter uh, some of the contents of that letter are very controversial sardar patel proved to be very short sighted when he actually said that you know the bhutanese and the tibetans and all our northeast indians will side with the chinese in case of any conflict with china so that uh, mentality is sorry to say racist right uh, just because he thought it perhaps looked somewhat like the chinese will all be pro china you know to say that assamese citizens of india or sikkimese citizens of india or you know nagas or manipuris are pro china that is not true uh, they some of their insurgents may have taken support from china against india but they do not identify themselves as chinese at all and they are in fact worried at times that you know china shouldn't also arunachalis for example sardar patel even questioned them though arunachalis have as a rock stood with india till now so not that everything sardar patel wrote in that letter was correct but this point of his was valid that he we might end up you know having some kind of a conflict who knows and why don't you sort this out with china but you know diplomatically we can address this for some reason pandit nehru tried away from doing so despite sardar patel's advice despite girija shankar bajpayee's advice despite other people's advice now after that you know in 1950 in fact nehru and the parliament said the mohan line is fixed he announced that in parliament and at the same time you know the survey of india the government of india's official cartographic agency they published a map which actually showed excitation's boundary undefined in the mohan line is undemarcated so you know the india's legal position that nehru was articulating was shaky to say the least and even a staunch indian nationalist like subramanian swami accepts that 
So if someone is upset with me and says I'm anti-national, uh, I may not agree with Mr. Swami on a lot of things, but I will cite his authority on this point. Say that you know it was a vague scenario. Now, another very interesting thing is that this could have possibly been negotiated. If you remember when I brought up Magnihan line initially, vis-a-vis Arunachal Pradesh, I mentioned something that it came in the light of the Anglo-Burmese war. Right? So Burm, the, now we look at the Magnihan line as Indians in the context of Arunachal Pradesh, but the same line extends even to Burma. Right? Burma was a part of India till the 30s, a part of British India, they separated. Otherwise, Burma has never been a part of any Pan-Indian empire, not Mauryan, not Mughal, not any other. But in British India, for a brief period, Burma was a part of India. And at that time, the Macmahon line, demarcating British India from Tibet or China, whichever way you look at it, also included Burma. Now, a very interesting fact is that, you know, in, in the context of Burma, the Burmese actually negotiated with the Chinese. And though the Chinese did not legally accept the Macmahon line, in the context of negotiation, the Chinese actually accepted the Macmahon line in the context of Burma, which they still do. But that was something that India did not even bring up with the Chinese to negotiate. So this is a point that is worth our attention, that is worth noting. And in fact, Chao Enlai, the pre, uh, you know, Chairman Mao was of course there, but the Premier of China was then Chao Enlai, was Hao Enlai, however you call him. Chao Enlai, I'm quoting his words. He said, in the context of the Macmahon line vis-a-vis Burma, this is worth listening to, it is almost impossible to define boundaries such as existed under Chinese feudal empires. So he accepted that, you know, the boundaries that were there in the times of British India when China was ruled by emperors. Now we as the communists may not follow those Chinese feudal boundaries. It's almost impossible. So this could have been an opportunity which India could have grabbed with both hands to actually initiate a negotiation to get the Chinese to possibly accept the Macmahon line when we were supporting them on various international issues when you know we were together in an Afro-Asian solidarity that you know was underlying you know Nehru's foreign policy at that point of time. Why Pandit Nehru chose to not negotiate this is something that only he can answer. He is no more. But this is something that is something that, you know, this is something that is very interesting to say the least. Then what started happening further, what was very strange was that in 1954, Pandit Nehru actually told the Indian army that, hey, we actually believe Arunachal Pradesh is a part of India. We believe that Excitin is a part of India. So we should actually put up our troops in these places. Now, without negotiating this with the Chinese, you actually put up your troops there. In, in regions that they claim as their own, Excitin was of particular strategic significance to them. This was seen by the Chinese as provocative. And this policy of Pandit Nehru's is called the forward policy, wherein we are asserting our sovereignty. Right now, in this particular scenario, obviously the Chinese, as I said, you know, and the Chinese also had some military presence around those areas. And since they saw it as a pro provocation, you know, this led to some sort of small border skirmishes between India and China from that period onwards. Do the Chinese also were not clean on this? 
Who they could have also negotiated the borders with India, for that matter. Why should this be put at Nehru's doorstep alone? But for whatever reason, you know, without the two countries, that's why I'm saying it's a case of missed opportunities because this could have been discussed and negotiated. At least we could have tried a hand at negotiation both sides, but we did not for whatever reason. And that basically started leading to skirmishes between India and China. Now, when you started doing that, you know, the Chinese also started setting up their check posts wherever the Indians had set them up. And, you know, this is a very, this led to, you know, a lot of skirmishes from 1954 to 1959. Now, it is also argued that, you know, the Chinese also were heading towards, Nehru had after that, you know, there are reasons that people have stated, you know, researchers or analysts have speculated. What could be the reason for China also not trying to negotiate this with India? And, you know, the reasons are that, you know, possibly, you know, because the Chinese by then had fallen out with the Soviet Union within the communist bloc, perhaps to lead the communist bloc now. For example, you'd see Iran at loggerheads with Saudi Arabia. Both want to take over leadership of the Islamic bloc of countries. Similarly, you know, China and the Soviet Union had this competition of who will lead the communist bloc. And therefore, to take an anti-India position, India being a non-communist country, could have been one reason. And India was decently friendly with the Soviet Union, not as friendly as it became later. Uh, we were non-aligned then. We were not really very close to the Soviets, but we had still a slight pro-Soviet tilt as compared to the Americans. So, you know, annoying India in this manner may have suited Chinese interests. That is one theory. Then, you know, further, some have even argued that, you know, Gao uh, and Lai was jealous of Nehru because Nehru came to be seen as a great statesman because he started the non-aligned movement. And let's note that the non-aligned movement is a very pivotal thing that happened. You know, very many people today, especially those who love to dismiss every Nehruvian legacy, may laugh at it. But it is thanks to non-alignment that India didn't become another Vietnam or Korea or, you know, for that matter, Afghanistan. You know, look at the mess these countries came in by allowing big powers to fight on their soil. So that way, non-alignment is a great legacy. It may not survive in the same form today, but even today we see developing countries coming together on carbon emissions, for example. We see developing countries coming together on many issues. The G77, which you know negotiates and WTO on behalf of the developing countries, actually is a byproduct of the non-aligned movement. So you know that is another allegation. So there are various you know allegations that are leveled against China for having not also, you know, if India was unilaterally stating its position, why was China not acting in time to actually say let's negotiate this, so on and so forth. Now. Moving on, what happened was that various skirmishes, as I mentioned, happened between 1954 and 1959. And, you know, Chinese started constructing a road in Aksai in 1958, and India protested against that, you know, not officially, not openly. And then, you know, in a letter to Chao and Lai dated 26 September 1959, 
Pandit Nehru actually wrote, and I quote, we did not release to the public the information which we had about various border intrusions into our territory by various Chinese personnel since 1954, the construction of a road across Indian territory in Ladakh, and the arrest of our personnel on that site in area in 1958 and their detention. We did not give publicity to this in the hope that peaceful solutions of the disputes may be furthered." Unquote. So where do we see this scenario developing? This scenario develops that over here, basically we are having skirmishes, we are having border problems. The Indian people are being kept in the dark. The average Indian citizen doesn't know that this is going on. And Pandit Nehru is even writing to Chawan Lai that we are not informing our people because we want to solve this, you know, behind the scenes and people don't even need to know that any of this happened. So, in this scenario, meanwhile, you know, what has been happening is that the Chinese have felt that even at that time, in the late 50s, that, you know, somewhere India has been interfering in Tibet, you know, in collusion with the Soviets or the Americans or other people. That allegation was already there because the Dalai Lama had made one trip to India and India had said we support the autonomy of Tibet, even before you know the Dalai Lama's flight. Maybe because there was also there were also internal domestic reasons for that, because a lot of Indians had sentimental ideas about Tibet even then. And you know, a lot of socialist politicians like Ramanuhar Lohia were saying that you know we will not allow China to intrude into Tibet's autonomy and we've had trade relations with Tibet directly, which the British had given them those privileges. How can you let go of those privileges? So on and so forth. So, you know, that is also why Nehru actually took an official stance on Tibet, and China was seeing it as interference. And then after that, we are having border skirmishes. Now, after all of this happens, you know. In 1952, Nehru had suggested that maybe we should be straight and frank with the Indian people. Then after that, in 19, in the same year, you know, uh, later he writes another letter that we should reconsider and talk to the, and you know, just sort it out diplomatically. Now, beyond this, and one person who had advised Nehru against discussing the border dispute with China was K.M. Panikar, who is a diplomat. And he had, you know, India's then ambassador to China, he said, we shouldn't, you know, demarcate the border dispute with the Chinese, let's, you know, just let it be, we'll accept our position, which obviously was not to be. That was not the best advice. And then, suddenly in 1959, now note this, the Indian public has not been told about how and why the Chinese don't accept the McMahon line. They don't know why excitation is a disputed area. They don't know that we were the ones who first put our troops there by way of the forward policy. The Indian people don't know any of this. In 1959, the Indian government suddenly leaks out a lot of data in the form of white papers, which are publicly accessible, saying that the Chinese are trying to intrude into our territory and they want to invade Aksai and Arunachal Pradesh. And remember, this is the generation of the freedom struggle which was very high on nationalist fervor at that point of time, right? So a logical appraisal of things became impossible and the Indian public reacted very aggressively, you know? So I can quote to you, for example, uh, you, know, you know, the statement of 
the Australia of an Australian diplomat in India at that point of time, Walter Crocker. The result of these revelations, the white papers that were released, those revelations, he talks about them. The result of these revelations was an upsurge of nationalism of India of a bitter, at times of a frenzied kind. It equaled the nationalism against Britain at its most fervid a couple of decades earlier and that against Pakistan after partition. So this was the sort of mass frenzy that how can the Chinese intrude into our territory? You know, not as inch of our sacred soil should be ceded to the Chinese. Uh, but the Chinese also had, you know, their own perhaps valid legal claims over these territories was a fact that was not known to the Indian public. So they obviously reacted very angrily. Can't blame or judge the Indian public too much either because they were not aware. And, you know, I'll quote Subramanian Swami on this point again. Subramanian Swami makes it an interesting, you know, mentions something which is worth noting that, you know, Rajiv Gandhi was the first one to tell the Indian people that actually, you know, China wasn't a party to the Maknehan line, if it was. So, you know, to quote Subramanian Swami, he corrected the mendacity of his grandfather, Nehru, on this issue. So, you know, in this climate, what happens is Chao and Lai comes to India in 1960. Also, please note the Chinese do not understand democracy. They do not understand how democratic countries function. In this climate, Chao and Lai comes to India in 1960. And what happens then is he is greeted with black flags by a lot of Indian people, asking him to go back telling him that you are an intruder into our territory. And, but still, Chavan Lai comes up with a very interesting proposal for Nehru. And what was that proposal? Chavan Lai actually said, we can swap claims over Aksai Chin and Arunachal Pradesh. Chavan Lai actually said, India should let go of its claim over Aksai Chin, and China will let go of its claim over Arunachal Pradesh. They'll recognize the Makhdian name. So this offer came to Nehru. This is on record. This can be verified. And in this scenario, basically, and this is happening despite the bitterness of the forward policy initiated by Nehru. This is despite the fact in 1960, already the Dalai Lama has been given asylum in 1959. And he is not insisting on the Dalai Lama being returned, but he is insisting that, you know, let us have our claim over excitation because it's strategically significant for them. Now, Nehru liked the offer, but by then he could not accept it. Why? Because of the hyper-nationalist surge in the country, including within his own Congress party at that point of time. So, you know, Walter Crocker, for example, has, you know, mentioned that, you know, the press clamored that not an inch of the sacred soil should be lost of India. And Likewise, you know, people have in fact gone to the extent of arguing that, you know, if Nehru would have agreed to the swap, the swap would have never really happened. Nehru would have been unseated as prime minister and someone else would have come and not accepted the swap. The sentiment was that strong at this point of time. And, you know, as I was mentioning, the Jansan, for example, at that point of time said there should be no abdication of claims over any part of Indian territory. Atal Bihari Vajpayee is a young parliamentarian who was very vocal against China in his speeches at that time. Uh, and, you know, the left and the right were pretty much on the same page, not the communists. They, they have a more complicated history. 
vis-a-vis China, but the socialists, you know, Ram Manohar Lohia and others, even Jayaprakash Narayan, Jayaprakash Narayan called the Chinese cruel imperialists. So there was no attempt in India to actually objectively understand this issue. There was a hyper-nationalist frenzy that the Chinese want to take over our territory and how dare they claim even an interpartite. Now, further, you know, what happened was that in 1961, something very major happened. And that doesn't relate to China directly, but it relates to the hyper-nationalist climate within India. In 1961, India under Nehru, and this is worth noting for those who call Nehru weak, but you know, soft. In fact, even the forward policy was not softness. It was uh, perhaps an unnecessary display of aggression. But in 1961, India under Nehru actually, you know, integrated Goa into India by fighting the Portuguese, right? At this point of time, Lal Bahadur Shastri, who was not then the Prime Minister, Nehru was the Prime Minister, in the parliament said, we have won in the Chinese, we'll do to them what we did to the Portuguese. If we can defeat a European power, who are the Chinese? So, you know, at that point of time, this development further gave a false boost to hyper-nationalist ego in India. Then further, but the Chinese were watching this all along. Border skirmishes were continuing because there was no settlement. Right. And since the swap offer offered by China was not accepted, China also didn't give up its claim over Arunachal Pradesh. Why should they? From their point of view. So, and, you know, Nehru, for example, on 12th September 1959, you know, he had said, this place at Sai Chin is in our maps, but, you know, it is not at all a dead clear matter. This has nothing to do with the McMahon line. But Nehru had accepted that Aksai Chin is a more controversial affair in 1959, before Tawan Lai So he would have perhaps given his own instinct, perhaps accepted that swap offer. But he couldn't because he himself was responsible for releasing the data suddenly, not incrementally, which made people turn so anti-China. Now, because India had basically failed at resolving this issue diplomatically, India was choosing to be militarily assertive against a country, which the intelligence bureau chief B.N. Malik had said, given the topography in the Himalayas, we have a strategic edge over time. And this misinformation was guiding India to think that, you know, we can get away without negotiating, we can actually announce our position unilaterally because we have not hand over it. This wrong intelligence given by B.N. Malik Ian Malik proved to be a remarkable man in some other ways. That's, I'm not going to write him off as a personality historically, but this was a major, major blunder. Also, some people have started saying in India, some apologists say that, you know, the forward policy came about after a certain firing exchange between India and China in 1959 and Arunachal Pradesh. But no, there is evidence to show there is a minute on record of Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru on 12th May 1954 in which Nehru has stated, and I quote, we should establish check posts at all disputed points wherever they may be. Furthermore, in a note of the Foreign Secretary dated 18th June 1954, Nehru said, again, no country can ultimately rely upon the permanent goodwill or bona fides of another country. 
even though they might be in close friendship with one another certainly it is conceivable that our relations with china might worsen although there is no immediate likelihood of that adequate precautions have to be taken so nehru was the forward policy does date back to 1954 which there is historical evidence even if we say that the indian army didn't do a great job of implementing nehru's minute that doesn't mean that the intent wasn't there right from 1954 on and you know once the political order has come from the prime minister it's not possible that the army wouldn't have set up any tech posts whatsoever now further what is important to understand is that okay even if we were planning to be overly aggressive and unilaterally impose our narrative and believe that you know we have a strategic edge over them do we really militarily superior we would one major reason for that was the condition of our defense ministry at that point of time so now the then defense minister was vk krishna menon and uh, he is a very interesting character of indian history so you know mahatma gandhi and sardar patel were skeptical about his honesty in spending public funds i mean he was assumed to be financially not completely honest at that time when politics was much less financially corrupt than what it is today right in fact maulana abul kalam azad india's first education minister he really disliked krishna menon in fact to quote molana azad's biographer humayun kabir molana azad not only disliked but had almost contempt for mr krishna menon he felt that mr krishna menon was not trustworthy when in 1954 mr jawaharlal nehru wanted to include mr menon in the cabinet molana azad sent in his resignation it was only with great difficulty that he could later be persuaded to agree to mr menon's inclusion in the cabinet so now what was the problem with krishna menon krishna menon was a good orator and he defended india's case on kashmir he gave a speech longer than 24 hours at one go in the un standing uh, he also you know defended india's position on goa against portugal in the un so he was a remarkable figure in terms of you know intellectual debate and stuff like that but was he good as a defense minister the fact is he didn't even like being given the defense portfolio himself to be fair to him on this count and then he also had his own mr krishna menon had leftist inclinations and he actually believed that you know the army should be self sufficient and you know therefore he actually spent defense budget which was given to him which was already not enough actually it deserved to be more he spent some of it in actually making air clips and pressure cookers for soldiers instead of buying those items because he believed the army as an institution should be self sufficient not buy from others so actually defense ministry factories were manufacturing pressure cookers not only that they were manufacturing mechanical toys for the children of soldiers including toy trains and mr krishna menon himself at that age enjoyed playing with toy trains that's another trivia it is a fact so this was our defense minister at that point of time right and then he used to make a lot of foreign tours he was not the foreign minister of india he was the defense minister he would make too many foreign tours which even annoyed pandit nehru and very interestingly 
1958, you know, from 1954 to 1959, we were having skirmishes with the Chinese. Krishna Menon actually, had a, you know, a Chinese military delegation had come to India, fair enough. Krishna Menon actually made them poor India's sensitive defense establishments and see things with it. So this was, you know, a defense minister at that point of time. Furthermore, the then finance minister was Murarji Desai, who later became prime minister. He had a personal ego clash with Mr. Krishna Menon. And even if Mr. Krishna Menon made valid points as regards, you know, increasing the expenditure of the defense ministry, you know, Mr. Murarji Desai as finance minister had great pleasure in rejecting those requests and the budget was in his hands. And a lot of leftists in India believe that defense budget shouldn't be very high because we are a developing country. So that again, you know, became a huge issue. So therefore the Indian army, uh, you know, was actually no match for its Chinese counterpart. And there, uh, you know, various people from the Indian army, you had, you know, for example, you know, General Thimaya, he had actually on record stated that, you know, he shouldn't go ahead with this forward policy. It is a foolish policy. It is a provocative policy. And we should not, you know, provoke the Chinese. And therefore, actually in 1961, you know, for example, another general, General S.D. Burma, he had written a letter to his superior general P.M. Thapar saying that Pandit Nehru has been misinformed of the facts by the intelligence. And, you know, this particular policy that we are following is not making sense. But, you know, that was not listened to him. In fact, his superior, General P.N. Thapar, told General Verma, withdraw your letter. General Verma refused to withdraw his letter. He was suspended for, that, for speaking the truth. More interestingly, I referred to General Thimaya to start with. General Thimaya in 1959 had become publicly outspoken wherein he said that, you know, basically, Chinese, the Chinese are militarily superior and we should not provoke them. Now, the defense minister, Mr. Krishna Menon, took offense at Mr. Thimaya. He leveled allegations at Mr. Thimaya. He asked, you know, Mr. Thimaya to resign, in fact. After that, you know, uh, this conflict kept going on between Thimaya and Menon. Eventually, you know, Thimaya remained in the army till his retirement. He was not made to resign. But Mr. Thimaya, General Thimaya, resigned in 1961. In his retirement speech, he said this to his soldiers. I hope I am not leaving you as cannon fodder for the Chinese. God bless you all. In April 1961. This is General Thimaya's statement. Now what is interesting is, why did Pandit Nehru believe, not believe General Verma or General Thimaya? It's a valid question. The reason is that not only was he given wrong intelligence by the IB, the fact is that within the army, for some weird reason, the top brass may be to please Nehru for whatever reason or why that would please Nehru, they could have filled in with the facts. But the top brass of the army kept telling Nehru that there is no great threat from the Chinese. In fact, they were suspending their own men who said other things, like General Verma. So this basically happened. 
and then actually you know Gen once General Thimaiya left, General Bridmohan Paul, who was one of the yes men who said China is not a major threat, basically said that, you know, uh, so he basically was a, one of the yes men. He was promoted out of ten, and then after that, eventually, you know, General Premna Thapar, General Chief of Army Staff, General Call, the Chief of Army Staff, General Premna Thapar. General Premna Thapar later made contrarian claims that he had informed him, but there's no record of that. But you know, he had thought of it otherwise. Putting everything together, you know, what actually happened was that in 1962, the Chinese actually attacked, keeping India unawares at a time when Nehru was abroad, and they basically attacked at a time when India was not prepared to militarily take on the Chinese, and we suffered heavy casualties in that war. and though there is some criticism that we didn't use the air force though we should have the fact is that the air force itself the air force chief for that matter has gone on record to say that you know we were not in a position to actually take on the chinese at that point of time we were not prepared so you know putting things together it was a humiliating defeat for india in that war and that war was because not because of any backstabbing in fact two former indian diplomats you know rangnathan and thanna they have argued that it was not a stab from the back by the chinese but a stab from the front because there was the real opportunities at negotiation missed by both sides so this is the background i can give you about the specific war that was fought in 1962 and yes i mean i think uh that really answers your question about you know why and how we really you know what is so pivotal in our understanding of this particular conflict yeah yes it does thank you so much karmani for covering this major topic all right okay moving on another arena to be looked at while evaluating sino indian relations is the state of sikkim now for a long time china claimed sikkim to be an independent country and it was only in 2003 that indian sovereignty over sikkim was finally recognized can you yes. tell us more about sikkim in indo china relation in the chinese relation okay okay since i don't want you know we are already a little over time so i'll be very very brief in answering this question fundamentally yes sikkim was one of the princely states under the british crown and for some reason there was some misunderstanding wherein its legal status was thought of as being like nepal or bhutan which were subsidiary but sovereign powers even after 1857 this was a genuine misunderstanding sikkim even had indian freedom fighters against the british like trilotan pokhrel who was a gandhian and though sikkim did not join india immediately after independence within sikkim while there was a section that preferred sikkim being an independent country there was a section that fought against the monarchy in sikkim there was the sikkim national congress which consisted of indian nationalists and they wanted merger with india definitely the indian intelligence had a role to play in you know sikkim joining india in 1975 but the movements launched by the sikkim national congress had some degree or quite a bit of degree of public support Uh, you know people who were engaging in civil disobedience who were taking on their own country who were getting beaten up to suggest that all these people were merely paid agents of india is a bit ridiculous 
because there were genuine mass movements at that point of time which were in favor of accession to india and against the feudal monarchy prevalent in sikkim china basically held you know the integration of sikkim by indira gandhi in 1975 to be expansionist on india's part opposition india did not accept the sikkimese people today have no secessionist movement of any consequence against india and in 2003 when india and andhraj india and china started warming up to each other india reaffirmed its position that it regards tibet as a part of china and china accepted you know sikkim as a part of india though earlier certain parts of sikkim were also claimed by china and there was you know a military confrontation that happened over the nakula pass between india and china earlier and in which the indian soldiers were managed actually managed to ward off the chinese threat The Sikkimese today are very happy to be Indian, and you know they are a part of the mosaic that India is. In fact, a lot of non-northeastern Indians actually live there very comfortably. And the Doklam standoff, which relates to territory within Bhutan, because Bhutan is seen by India as its protectorate, that particular conflict happened because, and that near that was near Sikkim, and Doklam the Doklam plateau even covers parts of Sikkim beyond Bhutan. that conflict happened because the chinese were constructing a road in doklam which india and bhutan regard as a part of bhutan and it is close to the chickens neck the region that connects mainland india with the northeast so losing that strategically can be very problematic for india so the doklam standoff actually happened in which you know basically there was a lot of chest thumping in india that our troops didn't withdraw and the chinese were driven out but the chinese keep coming there again and again they've expanded the presence there from time to time so it is a strategically sensitive issue uh, sikkim is also of importance other than excitin or arunachal pradesh uh, so it deserves some degree of attention so yeah that i think answers your question about sikkim yeah thank you for your answer uh, so we had a very nice discussion about the history and uh, the history of this conflict so can you tell us what is the way forward for both the countries okay so you know the way forward is this particular discussion may have made it sound like i am an apologist to the chinese state despite some clarifications to the contrary but the fact is that like the americans or like the soviets before them the chinese are very hegemonic their claims over the south china sea for example don't make any sense in logic or international law you know wherein they are claiming you know this, the whole of the south china sea not recognizing maritime boundaries of the southeast asian countries and while in 1962 india's forward policy could have been a cause of that particular war now what has happened is that china is because it's much more militarily powerful than it was in 1962 it is making more transgressions for example they have no valid claim over the galwan valley on our side of the line of actual control so the reality is now that china will not care much for international law china will not care for anything but their aspirations their superpower aspirations and ambitions at this point of time while india should encourage better intellectual capital to understand the chinese rather than thinking of studying mandarin in schools as being anti national we need to deepen our understanding of china we should be willing to enter into reasonable compromises over the border dispute which can actually resolve issues and you know we don't have to surrender our legitimate claims or our legitimate sovereignty but it it may be a fair idea if at some point of time we feel that the chinese are under great pressure 
to enter into some kind of a compromise but to create that pressure over the chinese and prevent them from you know using any compromise to further advance into a territory the way they did in gbo uh, you know when the upa government was in power or in the galwan valley more recently we will have to make a strong foreign policy we will have to make alliances we can't only depend on the west we'll have to deepen our alliances with southeast asia we'll have to deepen our alliance what is a good idea with japan and australia at the maritime level so these are things we will have to do and we will have to you know be a stronger economy we'll have to be stronger militarily so these are things that we'll have to do and for making a strong economy i am not personally in favor of you know boycotting everything chinese or suspending all trade with china because we also benefit a lot from it but the idea that we shouldn't be necessarily dependent on chinese products in any area is important also in the telecommunication space we should be very wary of you know uh, the strategic implications that can have have over you know indian privacy and you know over indian communications in general uh, because you know that is an area where we should avoid chinese presence in my view this is a view that has been articulated by many strategic experts so yeah i think uh, that's all i can say about the way forward broadly speaking that was so informative thank you karmani now let's yes, talk sir. about now let's talk about your foundation the citizens foundation for policy solution that you mentioned in the yes. introduction Okay. okay so can tell us you know more about your uh, foundation okay so we've done some uh, so it's not only centered on foreign policy though we've even worked on some foreign policy related stuff and internal security related stuff uh, more broadly we worked on local public policy issues like air pollution we've worked on uh, you know rwa issues on local governance so we are working in a wide variety of areas but what may be most interesting for you guys as jsia alma mater is that you know this think tank was conceived by my friends karan bidani and swati paul and me while in a classroom in jsia so that you know in the non residential campus in kutub so yeah that is and perhaps it was discussed even in the earlier campus in anandniketan non residential campus it was in a hotel in anandniketan in the basement run by the dindal found dindal industries so yeah i mean it the idea came from there and therefore we built on that and we are trying to make it work and we are we worked with the delhi government we worked with various agencies and we are trying to you know make a meaningful difference to the society and to our nation and to humanity so that is what the attempt is if people are interested in collaborating with us in turning with us uh, we are open to that if you guys want to take up some projects with us and we're even open to working on foreign policy related stuff so yes that is a little bit about since you asked about i think that that's such an interesting story and must be an inspiration for most of the students in jsia had <laughs> to hear that so, thank yeah, you thank you thank you karmani for giving us your um, valuable time and uh, even for us undergrad students it's always good uh, interacting with alumni and um, so and also thank you so much for listening to the podcast we'll be back with more thank you karman thank you thank you for joining us thank you for having me as well great talking to you guys thank you so much thank you thank you, thank you.